Welcome. You're on Deep Background, the Kansas City Star's newsroom podcast. I'm Scott Cannon, a reporter with the Star. I'm joined by two of the Star's digital editors, Leah Becerra and Jay Pilgrim. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks Thank for you. having us. We're going to do one of our uh, Control-Alt-KC uh, tech podcasts. Uh, I think most of this stuff will kind of be rather universal, but we may see, find some ways to bring the con- discussion back to Kansas City and the things that are particular to us. Um, and I want to go through two things, uh, two categories, basically. One is, are we too in love with tech, and do we need to say no to it sometimes? And then this, at, at the end of the, the podcast, we'll run through a couple of tips on making yourself a little safer online, passwords, et cetera. Uh, a little bit of spinach at the end, but we hope it's helpful to you. <laughs> um, so let me give an example of a sort of thing that I feel, and, and maybe it's worth noting here, I'm a, a baby boomer. I think Leah's probably a millennial, and Jay's probably Generation X or Y. Somewhere in the middle, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, so we come at this from a, a couple of different perspectives. Um, you know, I started a career on a typewriter, literally. So, uh, And uh, I think Leah probably was working on a computer before her teen years, right? Yeah, I remember my first home desktop out in the, the living room area that we both shared. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I found out last week that um, because I'm a Kansas City Power & Light customer, that I can get a Nest thermostat for free. In fact, the utility will pay me 50 bucks if I install it myself. It's it's zipping on its way to me now. And I, let, let's kick off the premise that I'm, I feel a little like an idiot for putting this device into my house. Um, maybe, Leah, you're probably best. Why don't you sort of explain to people who don't know what a Nest is, what it, what, what makes it unique? So I guess the best way to explain it, Jay and I were talking a little bit before you got in here about like what something can do for you. So like what the Nest thermostat would do for you is make it so that you don't have to walk up to your wall and adjust the temperature manually every time you're too hot or too cold or like maybe you just got home from work. The Nest would actually know when those things have happened. It knows that, oh, you like it cooler in the evenings, you like it warmer during the day when you're not here, and it would make those adjustments manually. Or you could just like open up the app on your phone and make those adjustments there too. Right, and it, it, I think it actually tracks your behavior in the sense that it, it has ways of sensing when you're in the house. I don't know, is it, it, you know, some sort of motion detector when you walk by that part of your hallway? Usually it's tied to the app. So um, like if you have location services turned on on your phone, uh-huh. Um, it would know like, oh, you're in the you're in the premise of the house, so you like it this temperature. We're going to adjust it for okay. you. Okay, and, and I'll I'll confess, I I'm not getting this thing just because I can get something for free and get a fifty dollar check from my utility company. It's because the um, programmable thermostat we have in the house now is a little clunky, and um, I find it a bit of a pain to work with. Um, and my wife finds it almost indecipherable. It's, um, but that's like something I have to deal with three or four times a year to adjust it. I've got it set to go, you know, this temperature at night, this temperature during the day, different temperatures on weekends. It's, you know, 10 years old the most. It's fairly sophisticated in the sense that it can, it can keep my utility bill down by not heating or cooling the place when I don't need to be there. But, you know... Like you said, all I got to do is walk a few steps and change the temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, I'm, I, instead, I'm I'm letting this thing into my house that gives 
the world, my utility company, the, the folks at Google who bought Nest for, I think, $3.2 billion a few years ago, another way to track my life and to gain leverage over me. Should I, you, you, is this a smart move? Is this, should I be comfortable with that? I, I mean, I think it's up to the individual. If that device is providing you with something that you find helpful um, or that makes your life better, it might be worth it to give away a little bit of information. But, you know, as long as you're comfortable with the information that's being given away. In this case, I think the information might just be that my phone is in this area. So that's, that's a location that you're giving away potentially. What it's probably not giving away is um, the exact, I don't know, like address of your home. Do you know if that's true? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I, I, there was a, a, a paper that sort of broke down some vulnerabilities. So, Jay, if, I don't know if you're eligible for the KCPNL's free nest. Would you contemplate spending 200 dollars to buy a device to put in your home simply? Let's just set aside the privacy issues. One of the things I want to address is that we tend to be seduced by technology almost for technology's sake, because it, it is kind of cool. I can just fix it with my my phone, set it with my phone. If I'm away on a, for the weekend a little bit longer than I thought, I can adjust things accordingly. Is that something you would pay that money for? We didn't, but we just moved, and it had a nest in it. And um, I, I had to read up about it, kind of learned about it. Uh, I'm a big Google person, so most they have most of my information already, and I gave it to them willingly. But I'll tell you, when we were driving home after coming home from the 4th of July, and we're an hour out of Kansas City, and we have our Nest thermostat set to what's called eco mode, which means the house is at 85. And again, an hour out, I said, honey, pull up the phone and turn the house back down to 76. And when we walk in, it's 76 degrees. It's really helpful. It, it was actually kind of cool. Um, that's not something that we could do with our, our old programmable, programmable uh, thermostat, just like you had. Uh, and it was nice. Yeah. It, and and I, I'm going to push back that I acknowledge that it's cool and that it's helpful. But um, I want, you know, it, it, it amazes me that somebody on the open market would pay $200, $250 for that level of convenience and cool. I mean, it, you're, and it, it's, I, I, be hard pressed. I wonder how many years one would have to have a nest in their house before it somehow paid for itself and all those sorts of savings of adjusting here and there. I think people jump on on those sorts of things. You know, you could also look at it as the as the point of you kind of need to replace your programmable thermostat or it breaks. It's an alternative. That's the way we would always look at things. So right. if, our, if our thermostat broke, what's the best one I can get that might help save money? Because I'm going to have to spend it either way. All right. But some people just jump on it, yeah. Um, so the, some brainiacs at the University of Central Florida published a, a study in the last year, I think it was the last few months, talking about some vulnerabilities. There. And they, they, in it, they quote the founder of Nest, Tony Fadell, F-A-D-E-L-L, -L, talking about how we have bank-level security. And he makes the point that they, they need that level of security or the thing will never take off. And that, that's what businesses 
there's some truth to that, but there's also a tendency to, for corporate folks to give lip service to that because you've got to maintain that posture. Now, if they do get hacked on a regular occasion and it becomes a problem, yeah, the, the, the bottom falls out on the nest market. But these guys looked at it, and they found there were a number of ways. First of all, anytime it's in transit to you, somebody could hack it. Anytime someone has access to it, if they're in your office or they're in your house, so an ex is coming by to pick up that box of things, uh, they might be able to plug in. They, these guys demonstrate that you could. And essentially, because it's tied into your Wi-Fi network or your whatever your Internet network, um, it becomes a backdoor to just about everything in that network. Um, so you could, they, they say not only usage statistics are uploaded, but also system logs and Nest software logs, which contains information about the user's zip code, device settings, HVAC settings, and wiring configuration. Um, and they, they say what was once a learning thermostat has been transformed into a spy. <laughs> now, there, I mean, that may be sort of high-level paranoia, but again, it's I, it's me pushing back, saying, you know, do we need all these sorts of high tech things? Um, a refrigerator is, is is sort of the Internet of Things sort of Uber example. I don't mean, I mean the ultimate example. Yeah. And um, the idea is, I I look at my phone and I can tell I'm out of milk because my, or, or I'm out of butter or whatever is in there that that, that X you know, uh, condiment has expired. I mean, the alternative is, is you could look in the refrigerator. Um, but it, in return for that, you're paying, I mean, it's got to be real money to outfit something like that. And yet, it, and it's yet another backdoor to somebody knows what's going on inside your house. Is it just me being an old guy that I'm a little bothered that Google or, or Facebook or Amazon you know, it, it, Amazon's got the, um, what's the push-button device where you order something automatically? The dot? The dot. Or the... No, not the dot. The dash button. Dash button there. So you've, you've got a dash button for Tide, so you push it and it automatically orders you yeah. more things, which is great for Amazon because Amazon locks down the sale of all your laundry detergent. But, you know, I'm giving up some privacy and I'm locking myself into a, a particular provider. For the record, I don't think I would buy a smart fridge personally. I don't, I don't see a lot of value there. Um, although, I mean, things do expire in my fridge every so often, so maybe that would be nice. But, but right now, the, the things that are smart that do help in my mind are things like um, fitness trackers or trackers for different health issues. Like those are smart devices that I see huge value in. Um, I really would like a Nest, actually. Um, we don't have one yet, but we have talked about getting one in a future home or something like that. Um, so there definitely are well, things. Well, my right is because it's cool? It's not because it's cool in my mind. It's because it can, it can make my life better in some way. Okay. Um, so, like, I think the Nest thermostat would be great because right now I live on a third-floor apartment building that drastically changes temperature-wise all the time. So we're constantly adjusting it. You know, you'll wake up in the middle of the night in a sweat because it's so hot, whereas when you went to bed, it was fine. So that would be helpful. Um, whereas with a smart fridge, I, I don't really see any value there. Following that, that 
path, take it to a, an extreme, you know, technology is, is supposed to help you and, and make things easier or take less time. Um, and with the case with the smart refrigerator, if you don't ever have to get off of your couch to know what you do or do not need, and you don't even need to go out and get off your couch to order it, is that helping your health? Should you have to get up to go to the store? Is that a good activity? Um, well, Leah's going to get up because her, her fitness tracker is going <laughs> to mark her Marker steps. Marker is not. And you could, you could go to that extreme. But I, I do think that a lot of times this technology is sold as cool. And it's, it's honestly a little silly. Um, there are very good ways of getting to know what you need to know. Is it raining? Go outside. You'll know. Um, so it's kind of a trade-off, I think. Um, and people do t people go a little too far with it. Uh, and you do need to come back a tad. Right. I will say for the Nest, there's, there's some aggregate community benefits to this. So there, there's a reason KCPNL is giving these out. They want to be able to manage the power grid so that when it's really hot outside, they've got enough power to go around. By taking their Nest, I'm giving them the power, and they're very explicit when I order this, that... Um, at times, they might want to turn the temperature up by three degrees. So it's 100 degrees all day long. The power plants are getting pushed to their max. KCPNL can go turn down all the Nest customers, or turn down the air conditioners, turn up the temperature to all those Nest customers' homes. Now, I, I can override that, but you could see the collective power, and I can live with a th three degrees warmer. That's, that's a fair trade off for me. Plus, I as Leah points out, I don't even have to get off the couch. If I'm feeling a little too sweaty, I just grab from my phone and, and, and adjust things. So you're right, there are some, some benefits. Let me attack your fitness trackers. Okay. Um, <laughs> and and I, it's, it's an interesting dilemma. I think in the individual cases, there's a, a strong argument for them. And it, it's amazing to me how um, committed to people are. I, I, we all know folks who say, I've got to go walk around the building because I've got to hit my... 10,000 steps today. Again, there was a study suggesting that it doesn't help with weight loss, which is a motivation for a lot of people here. It's, it's fitness, of course, but the, the real, you know, decider on whether I, I'm going to lose weight um, is how much I eat. Mm -hmm. And the researchers found that on, uh, on whole that they are not effective and that, that people don't do any better and they might do a little worse than those who aren't wearing fitness trackers because at least a significant portion of people um, look at their, their click or their steps for the day or whatever sort of metric that's uh, watching their activity, and they've hit their goal, maybe they've surpassed, and they think, I can have that extra cookie, that extra piece of cake, a little bit bigger hamburger. Um, <clears throat> and they said the other thing that happens is that the, the same – way that um, that, that 10,000 step goal is a real incentive to people, those who don't make their goals become discouraged more quickly. Hmm. Um, now, you use one, right? You're wearing one now, it yeah, looks like. Yeah, I have a Misfit Ray. Um, I bought it when I was trying to decide between getting a smartwatch versus something more like a Fitbit. And this device is more like a Fitbit. Um, but I, I could totally see how that makes complete sense because I think a lot of people buy fitness trackers because they think it'll motivate them. So Well, that's the, absolutely the underlying thing there, right? It's, yes, definitely. Right. When I bought a fitness tracker, 
I didn't buy it because I needed motivation. I bought it because I was curious for more data about my daily workouts and work life and my eating habits. So I actually use my fitness tracker to get my daily steps. Um, it also tracks my laps when I swim and it gives, it sends a calorie breakdown to this other app that I use called MyFitnessPal. And MyFitnessPal is a space where I can actually input like the different things that I eat throughout the day. So what it does is it sends information about how many calories I'm burning from my activities. And MyFitnessPal says like, okay, a healthy person would eat of my height and weight and all that good stuff would eat about 1,500 or 15,000 calories a day, something like that. And you have only eaten X calories a day, but you've worked out, so you need to eat this many more. And it's all about being healthy. It's not necessarily about losing weight for me. Okay. And, and do you are you concerned at all that that data is shared in some way that marketers will use? I'm not really concerned about it. Um, I think that my generation is used to seeing ads and I can very easily tell the difference of like a targeted ad versus like a random ad and I can act accordingly. Um, I also use an ad blocker at home on my computer so I don't have to deal with a lot of the same things that I would necessarily like on a work computer or something like that. Right, but you could, you could imagine a scenario pretty easily where you're sharing so much of your data about your both your exercise and and where the money comes in is maybe in the in the diet side of things mm -hmm. that when you know the algorithms could say well if we hit Leah at this point because she's either exceeded or fell, fallen short of a goal um, now's the time to sell her power bars and we know that she'll pay 10% more for power bars now than she would if the data were different that's I mean, that's the danger that all this that the people see in this and you're I just, you're basically saying I'm too sophisticated for that I think that uh, younger tech savvy consumers they know better they they know full well and they've grown up knowing that they can be targeted by ads so with that knowledge comes like a, oh there's another ad for blah 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 because I was searching this last week and I don't have to let the ad actually get me because I just I know why it's there okay but you, you the Google people are rolling their eyes at this they're saying this millennial millennial thinks <laughs> that her generation is so savvy that the thing that has made us hundreds of billions of dollars doesn't work well it probably does work to a certain extent but I'm not going I have so much debt and things that I need to pay <laughs> that I'm not going to let an ad convince me to buy something that I don't necessarily need because I know that I have to pay my bills. Okay. <laughs> There's some uh, research that I've read to suggest that, that they know that, then that's true, that in the millennial generation, advertisements in the standard method of a box on the screen don't work. They don't even see them. And that's kind of part of where this big data research thing is coming from, uh, I'm, I, I think, is how to target people in a little more personal way that will, will make an impact because the regular stuff doesn't isn't even seen. Uh, it's just glossed over. Right. Well, the win-win scenario of this direct ad is that you want that power bar at that particular time or that coupon for a power bar 
and you're going to go that direction. Um, and it, we should say that, you know, Garmin has an awful lot of, you know, it, it's, it's heavily into avionics and, and marine navigation, but it's also one of the growing sectors of that Olathe-based company is fitness trackers. Yeah. And, you know, like I was saying, this study talks about, you know, there were a significant number of people who, for which this stuff backfires. But that's not to discount the number of people that it, it's a very helpful motivator to do this sort of thing. I, you know, I don't do it because I, you know, I exercise and I eat what I eat. I know when I'm eating too much and exercising too little, and I, I just don't want that electronic nag thing going on. Even if it would be effective for me, it's kind of not a way I want to go through life. But, you know, that's my sort of neurosis at work, I, I suspect. Um, do you all have, have you found yourself seduced by technology and decided, yeah, it was, I, I tried it because I, I feel like I've, you know, I, I continually clear out apps on my phone as an example because I'll think, oh, that'll be cool. Mm-hmm. And then I get it and it's like, no, it's not. Are there some in particular that you all have passed on? I, um, I love that we have the ability to try things and return them. So for example, in the past, I have purchased devices that I thought like, oh, this is gonna be so helpful for this and blah, 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 whatever. And then after a week of using it, been like, this hasn't really helped me. I'm gonna take it back. And I, th- I think that some people maybe in my generation kind of go into purchases with that thought and then they get lazy on the return side of things. They actually taking it back to the store after they realize it's not helping them out. Um, so I lost my train of thought, but so um, I think that the ability to try things out and take them back is very useful, um, I guess, for not being duped into buying something that's really not gonna help your life out. Now, returning a fridge would be difficult. I don't think I would do that again. Um, But if I had purchased my Misfit Ray, and I bought it like a year and a half ago, something like that, and it just wasn't helping me out, I would have taken it back. I absolutely would have. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of something else that I've done that with recently. I used to return phones, actually, when I was younger. I got my first smartphone. I hated it. I swapped it out for a different one, ended up loving the next one. So that's something that I take advantage of on a regular basis. I kind of, I'm curious whether other people actually do that. Yeah, I know I know what I when I'm about to switch from an, one phone to the next, I, I get very excited, but it's it's very much like a new car. You're that, that, that new car smell wears off so quickly and then it's just a something that I'm it's it has my email chasing me wherever mm-hmm. I go. Let, let me talk a, a switch just a little bit it's still on sort of the, the the network idea of technology and what's worth it and what's not I a quick list here so these are the things that I have to track in, in to some degree or another I've got two email accounts one for work and a private one I got to be on slack I've got to be on Twitter I've got to be on Facebook I've got to check Instagram um, hangouts I need to use Skype once in a while it doesn't include once I, you know, I, I, I'd hope Google Plus would be a better Facebook, and it's it's not. It's just an empty lot. Um, Instagram, Tumblr, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Periscope, Vine. It, you know, it, at some point, 
these will all become one thing, and that one thing will control all our lives. But it's, it, it, it's interesting to me that we're always, we've got so many ways to communicate with each other, and not one of them is quite good enough or these other ones wouldn't pop up. Do you find yourself jumping in and out of these kinds of services and networks, Jay? I find them exhausting, honestly. Um, I try very hard to put my phone down uh, after a certain period of the day. It's just over. No, I, I've tried to, uh, with, with work, of course you have to, but with friends and family, um, we try to keep it to one or two um, where, where everybody can follow along because it's, it's an overload. It, it really is to me. And I don't like to be the person that's always, you know, staring at my phone, uh, even while the TV's going and somebody's asking you a question. Um, so I, I'm not a I'm not a huge proponent of all of that stuff. Uh, we do have to do it for our jobs, but I don't I don't use them all that much personally. And you need to do it to stay in touch with the people in your life you care about. It's it it's a, a dilemma. Like each one is sort of a positive on their own, but added together, they become almost a net negative. Maybe not quite a net negative, but close to that. Is this a generational thing, Leah? Are you maybe glad to be circulating all these different pools? I I don't actually. I don't feel compelled to use any of them, really. There are some that I use because it fits into my life easily and to the people that I'm friends with easily. Um, and then there are others that maybe I try, and if they don't work out, they just kind of go away. Um, a good example is this app that came out maybe three years ago, and it was a chat app for couples in long-distance relationships. And at that time, um, my the person that I was dating, we had been long distance for like three years. And how would it be better than a, some other chat app? Exactly. Okay. It wasn't. It was terrible. It, I want to say it was called Avocado. That chat service is gone now. They did not last. And it was basically because it didn't offer us anything that we didn't get from other places already. And it just went away. So I think that one of the reasons Facebook... Um, and Twitter, Instagram is Facebook basically, are trying to branch out into so many spaces is because they want to make sure that the majority of your friends are using this service so that this ultimately someday becomes like the number one way that you're going to communicate with these people. Right. So they can mine your data and sell you stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, 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 I may just remind to be the geezer here again, when I was in my early 20s in a long-distance relationship, I had really one option, which was postal service, because she was overseas, and I think we, but you know, it was that or, or long-distance calls. The idea that someone would need just the right chat app is, is just sort of <laughs> mind-blowing to that, that person decades ago. Let's switch quick and, and, and be helpful to folks here. Um, and talk about how you know, the various ways people ought to behave themselves online to keep them and their data safe. I, it, I guess to me the sort of bottom line is get hold of your password and think twice before you click on something. Is Would you all say those are the, the two places to start? Yeah, passwords are easily one of the number one issues, I think, when people get hacked. Either they have a really poor password, like every single year there are rankings that get put out of the top most hacked passwords. And every single year the top most ha packed, hacked passwords are password, 
one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And it's just like they're really simple passwords. Right. But and of I course, don't know why people Of course, those are going to be the most them. common ones. The, the number is, I think over time, we, we have seen people get a little more sophisticated so that, that that doofus quotient that uses password as a password yeah. has shrunken down and shrunken down. But you're right. It's, it's, and it's, it's not that hard. You guys want to share your advice? Uh, we, we can sort of go through the various ways people can do this. Sure. Do you want to go sure, first? Sure, yeah. Well, okay. On What is your password, Jay? Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they recommend doing a, a different password for each service, and that will probably help silo you a little bit. So if somebody does get a hold of your password, it's only one thing that they've gotten into, not everything. Yeah, people will hear that and they go, oh, God. It's you know, really it's annoying. It's hard enough right away. And so I, I, got a, I got a trick I use, but go, go I ahead. I do as well. It's a variation of the same sort of thing that's personal to whatever the, the thing is. Um, the other one is... Um, you, you'll see it pop up in the big ones. Google will do it. Twitter will do it. Facebook does it. It's called two-factor authentication. This is a really cool thing, and if you don't know what it is, you should look it up. It's basically a secondary password, and your your, your mobile phone uh, is the thing that generates the right. code. Right, so, so I, I, I sign on to, uh, to whatever place I've authorized this. I, I type in my password, and then it's going to ask for the second thing. You look at your phone. You click an app, and a number that changes about every 60 seconds typically and you, you type that in. And you type that in. And it is, a, I mean, so let's admit, though, that that's a level of difficulty and hassle here. It is a level of hassle, but it, it protects you in that way. That means that you don't have to have the, at least in my opinion, the super long, really annoying to type on the iPhone password. You can have a standard password that somebody may or may not be able to figure out or, or fish out of you, but even if they do, they, they don't have your phone, so you're not going to get hacked. And that's kind of the big yeah, and, kicker and it, there. Just, I, I don't want to be appearing to disagree with you. It, it is an, another level of hassle, but everything you read says this is an order of magnitude in, in terms of increasing your security. It's, it's, it's a, it's a hassle, but it's worth the hassle because yeah. it's way more of a hassle to, like, deal with damage control after you've yeah. been hacked. It is. It is a hassle. And they have changed the way some of these things work. Now now there are certain apps that you just touch it and it automatically logs you in. So you just have to uh, say yes, okay on the okay button. Um, the other one that I would recommend, and this is an interesting conversation, and it goes on both sides. But I'm a big fan of the login with Google and login with Facebook button. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's coming from a person who has designed and architected login systems. And despite my absolute best intentions, there's no way that a, a small group of people could have the same resources as Google and Facebook to make sure that that is stored and transmitted securely. And so, you are, in a way, sharing um, more information with Google. They know other sites that you're on now because they know who you've given access to. But at the same time, you're not spreading your information out as wide. And that's kind of the, the deal. You, you would rarely hear that Google got hacked. That's a big deal. Uh, but you will hear that so-and-so Tilly's Flower Store, I should not have said that name. They have never been hacked. Sorry, that just well, popped in my let's mind. Let's go Target out there. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> was hacked, and they, um, uh, they've, they've had a problem. And so if you can restrict, in my mind, if you can restrict how many places have access to your information or a password that you have to monitor, some of that uh, inconvenience has, has reduced because instead of having 36 passwords, 
that I have to try and remember and or keep some way, I now have three. And I have a secondary step of having to enter a code to get to those things, but the secondary step of the code is much less than figuring out what that password was because I didn't use it in the last two and a half years. Right, and, and let's walk people through some of the, the easier basics on creating a password. I like to think of it in terms of um, license plate writing. So when people use that, you know, they use the eight for the ATE sound and you use the at sign for an A or a one as an L and take a non-dictionary word, some, you know, what, what your, your pet name for your boyfriend or girlfriend <laughs> and, and maybe add a, a phrase to it. They, you ought, it ought to be at least 11 or 12 characters, nothing that can be found in the dictionary. And, you know, the other sort of um, lesser sophisticated trick that I used for a while to, to address what you're talking about, Jay, is, well, how am I going to do that and remember these passwords for the, you know, all of us are into dozens and dozens of passwords we have at different sites, is to, I, I used to take, like, the first two letters of the website and put them in front of this word so that if if my password was password and I was logging to Facebook, it'd be FA password. So that if somebody hacked Facebook and tried to use my sign in for other websites, they'd be at least the robot would be thrown off course. A, a human might figure that out after a couple of places, but um, Leah, you probably got some other smart thoughts on yeah. what, how you handle this. Um, I also use a password manager. Um, so does my other half. We both use it. We use different companies, but they're so, so, so useful. The thing that I like about it most is that it actually generates a password for you. And then I have that password manager on my phone and on my computer, and I'm able to just have it autofill. So I don't need to remember those things. It's not a hassle, or at least not a big hassle for me to copy it from the password manager and plug it into wherever it goes. Um, that password manager also helps me do something else that's a good idea, and that is to change the passwords um, every so often. So I don't have any site, I don't have access to any site that I haven't changed the password for within the past like eight months or something like that. I just, I swap them out at least once a year, and that's because it's a good idea. Right. Two of these are um, password managers. One's called LastPass, and the other is one, the numeral one, Password. And I use Dashlane. Okay. Which is also a good one. And I did this just a few months ago, and I was, I was kicking myself for not doing it a long time ago. It took me less than 10 minutes to get it going. And now I don't, all, I've got one password in my life that I need to remember, and that's my password to get into the password manager, mm -hmm. which once it's loaded on a computer, I, have, I, I rarely have to use. It, it, it actually makes all this, it's one of those rare security things that makes things easier mm -hmm. rather than making it harder. Um, I also don't share my passwords with people. I know my, my mother's bad at this. She, she'll say like, oh, can you log into the site for me and fix something? This is my password. And I'll be like, mom, stop texting me your password. It's not a good idea. Don't do that. Just don't share your password with people, whether they're a relative, um, whether they're a coworker, and maybe your coworker's just signing into your computer. So many times, you know how there are statistics that say like that people who steal from you a lot of times are people that you know? Well, it could be the same situation with the password, honestly. Right. And it might be something that 
they didn't realize they were doing at the time when it happens, but it just just don't share your password. I would also argue you need to have a fail-safe, though, that you, you need to have somebody in your life who you can trust a password with. Um, I, I, my, my mother died a year ago, and it was a serious issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are things, and, you know, people get sick, things happen, you get where you're not at, where something needs to be done. It, if you've got somebody, hopefully you've got at least one person in your life, you ought to share that. Yeah. So. I also um, I also only sign into websites that are HTTPS websites. So yeah, it's S like Sam, it, and that's yeah. a big thing, folks. Yeah, so when you're on your browser and the place where the URL goes in, a lot of times there will be some symbol or it'll be green, it'll have a lock, and that's showing you that it's a secured website that you're logging into. That's really important, and if you don't see that, um, you shouldn't be putting a password into it. Um, it's probably not legitimate. Um, another thing that I don't, I don't do this regularly. I never sign into public Wi-Fi, um, and that's because if somebody really wanted to get your information, they could just set up a fake Wi-Fi spot, and you could accidentally log into it because you think that it's the coffee shop, you think it's the Starbucks that you're at, but it's actually not, and they can take your information that way. Um, I have a I have an unlimited data plan and through Verizon, but like Sprint, T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, they all have unlimited data plans where there's actually a 10 gigabyte hotspot included. So when I'm away from my home, I use my hotspot as my source of internet. And that's like a part of my plan that I'm paying for. And that gives me some extra security too. I agree on the on the Wi-Fi thing. You know, sometimes you just have to. Um, but... When you do, that same thing that you were talking about, the Nest, sending information back and forth, it's just the way the network works. And so once you log on to an airport network or a coffee shop network, you are transmitting information, and it's fragmented and it's really hard, but people can put it back together and and gain some insight about you, and, and especially depending on where you're going. And, and that's where the HTTPS version is even more important um, than uh, it just is in general. When you're on a public network, that's what that HTTPS does. It jumbles all that up together. And so when you make a request to change your flight at the airport, nobody can pick that up in the air on the way. Um, it's, it's, it's all jumbled, and the only, the, only the other computer on the other end knows how to get it back out. Um, so it's that, that's when it's really important to pay attention to that green bar up at the top of those websites. Okay. I'm going to go through real quickly. Uh, here's what Edward Snowden suggests you do. He says on your remote storage, don't use Amazon for the cloud or Dropbox or Google Drive. He suggests Kansas City's own Spider Oak, which in, everything is encrypted. So the Spider Oak folks could not tap into what you get in there. You pay a, a slight premium uh, if you paid. $10 for storage of your data at, 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 uh, at Google or Amazon, you'd pay, I think, 11 or 12 It's about that. And that's been, they tell me that they've seen a lot of, a, a significant uptick in the last year of journalists using this as a way to protect their sources in terms of sharing information. Um, he says encrypt your hard drive, which is not nothing, right? There's a little hassle and a lot of safety in that. Um, Suggest ad blockers like Ghostery, so you, the websites aren't tracking your behavior. Also encrypts 
suggests encrypting your chat and email and that you use Tor or a similar browser when you're going around the net. That's, that's a bit of a life changer in the sort of things he's thinking and, or suggesting, which tells you that there's a trade-off all along here, safety versus convenience. Yeah, I would say those are all like next level safety precautions. But if you, if, if you have some piece of information about yourself on your devices that you were really that scared about getting out there, that might be a good plan for you. Um, there is a tool that I want to say the Electronic Frontier Foundation created called HTTPS Everywhere. Um, and if you install it in your browser, it makes sure that whatever website you're going to, you're always getting an HTTPS version of it. And that's something that I have used um, on a regular basis and that like I put on my grandma's computer because I'm worried about her getting right, hacked right. all the time. <laughs> And, and, and the you know the couple walkaway lessons, I don't work on that password. It's always got to be HTTPS before when someone starts asking for a username and password, even if it's something Grandma sent you, it may not be Grandma. Yeah, you really need to think twice about those things. Intuition is also really uh, important. If you get an email from what something says it's Google, and we need you to log into your account, if that doesn't feel correct go to google much like you would you would not trust a random person calling you you would want to call the business uh, when you wanted to provide your personal information if somebody called and they said we were from the hospital and we're going to need your social security number to uh, verify a, a, a claim but you didn't even go to the hospital are you going to give them your social security number no um, you would probably call uh, the the hospital and say, "Hey, I got a phone call. This was very odd. Uh, do we have do do I have something that I need to address?" And the web is the same way. So email, especially, uh, most of the way people are getting hacked and most of the way passwords are getting out are these what are called phishing expeditions, phishing, or phishing, with, a phishing with a ph, and they're they're getting people to voluntarily contribute their own information by tricking them. Because at this point, people are much easier to hack than the computers themselves. Um, yeah, you're so the weak link, right? You are. And, and so when you get something that doesn't feel right, check it out. You can go to websites like Snopes.com, which are really good to tell you if something is a scam. Um, you can enter in subject lines and stuff like that to say, no, this is not real, or other people have reported they've gotten this too. Um, and just general Google searching um, will, will usually kind of help you out. Um, when the WannaCry phishing attack happens, the way that people... So this is... Okay, I'm going to set this up a little bit. If you ever get an email that says it's from Google, like Jay just said, and it says, like, so-and-so needs permission to access a document, a spreadsheet, something like that, a Google service, and you click it, and it says you have to like grant access for it. You usually don't actually have to do that in real life because you're already signed into Google. So if they would have had access, they probably already would have had access. Does that make sense? Right, right. So, so with WannaCry, um, there was a Google document that went out to people. And so-and-so was like trying to get you access to a document or something like that. And people were clicking it and then they were saying, yes, they can have access. Well. You should never have to give a Google document 
access to your account because it's already on Google, so you shouldn't have to sign into it. Right. So now that we've gotten the paranoia going, we'll uh, wrap things up. <laughs> Guys, thanks both of you for being with us. You all have been on Deep Background.